Good morning. Uh, as Jordan said, uh, my name's Chris Miller. Um, I've been a member at Remedy for my wife and I for a little over three years, and I'm just here to give FUD a break. Um, if you would, open up your Bibles. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And go ahead and stand with me, if you will. Occasionally, when we read the Word of God, we have everyone stand, and it's just symbolic of giving honor to God's Word, that this book is above every other book. All right, so chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You can be seated. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, this message from your word is just as much for me as it is for anyone else in this room. I need your strength, I need your power, I need your Holy Spirit to teach it rightly. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would just fill us all and apply this text to our lives and change our lives to make us look more like Christ, to value Christ more than anything else in our lives, so that if suffering comes our way on behalf of the gospel, we will willingly accept it and walk through it, and endure, and persevere, because Jesus is more worthy, because Jesus is more valuable. Teach us to be unashamed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things so that you might receive glory from us, and we might receive joy in you. Amen. So I wanted to start today by reading a couple excerpts of different disciples that followed Jesus in the Gospels and then in the book of Acts. This comes from kind of Fox's book of martyrs. And each one of these is just a couple sentences about each disciple and how they suffered even to the point of death on behalf of Christ. The reason I want to kind of point this out and start here is because the passage that we're looking at today is all about suffering, being being willing to share in the suffering that might come our way because we hold on to the gospel, because we've been entrusted with gospel. So let me just start. Philip. He labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom at Heliopolis. He was scourged, thrown in prison, and afterward crucified. Matthew, the writer of the gospel of Matthew. He worked as a toll gatherer, and in Parthia, he was slain with a halberd in the city of Nadaba. James the Less, Jesus' half-brother, was He was given charge in the book of Acts over the church of Jerusalem, and he wrote the book of James, which is in our Bible. When he was 94 years old, 
He was beaten, stoned by the Jews, and finally clubbed to death. Luke, also the author of the Gospel of Luke, was hanged on an olive tree by priests who were worshiping idols in the, in the country of Greece. Thomas, the guy that got to feel the marks, the indentations in the Lord's hand and see the resurrected Savior. Thomas went and he preached passionately the gospel in India where pagan priests then killed him with a spear. And finally, we come to Timothy, right? Because Paul's writing to Timothy and he's, he's telling Timothy, share in the suffering that comes on behalf of the gospel. And here's Timothy's testimony to us that he listened to Paul. Um, the celebrated disciple of Paul severely reproved a group of people who were celebrating a feast to pagan gods. Timothy reproved them of their idolatry, and they beat him so bad with clubs that two days later, he died of his wounds. Timothy kept the faith. He fought the fight as a good soldier. He ran the race as a disciplined athlete, and he worked the farm as a hardworking farmer. I wanted to start there because last week we were looking at 2 Timothy 1, 15-27, and it gave us kind of five things that we're responsible for after being entrusted with the gospel. Five responsibilities that God is calling us to carry out because we've been entrusted with the gospel. And one of the responsibilities that Paul zeroed in on was share in suffering on behalf of the gospel. And to show that Paul was really zeroed in on that, he gave three analogies, right? He gave us the suffer as a good soldier, suffer as a disciplined athlete, suffer as a hardworking farmer. Well, now Paul is specifically talking about that and drawing out He's, he's no longer answering the question, you know, what is our responsibility as, as people who've been entrusted with the gospel? But now he's answering the question, why should we suffer on behalf of the gospel? What's our reason to suffer on behalf of the gospel? What's our motivation? And Paul's going to give Timothy and us um, three reasons, which are also motivations for why we should suffer. So not only are they the reasons why we should suffer, but they're also the very things that we think about that gives us motivation and strength to actually suffer on behalf of the gospel. And so that's kind of where we're going today. And so let's just go ahead and start. The first reason, and this comes to us in verses 8 through 9. Reason number one, we should be willing to suffer because Jesus, our commander, was willing to suffer. We should be willing to suffer because Jesus, our commander, was willing to suffer. Paul says this in 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Notice the first command here, right? Remember Jesus Christ. And again, this is in the present tense. Paul likes to use the present tense. And what that is, is just simply continually remember Jesus. So it's not just like, oh, you know, remember him this one time. Or, you know, occasionally every Sunday preach about him and then remember him then. But it's make a habitual effort. Make a daily remembering of Jesus. Make sure you're doing that daily, right? Why, Paul? I mean, we hear the gospel all the time. We read books, gospel-centered dog training. We have... Sermons every week where FUD cannot help but give us the gospel every two seconds, right? I mean, we, we've, we've got this. Why do we need to remember? Um, the memory, the human memory is fickle. So let me give you three kind of humorous examples of human memory, the fickleness of human memory. All right, these are three stories that some guys um, talked about. 
First story. I do not like Del Taco, but I was in California on business, and there was a Del Taco right next to my hotel, and I was too tired, and I was too hungry, and so I went. The drive throughs packed, and so we're inching along. I got up to the window. I paid for the meal, and I drove off, and then I realized, you know what? I never ordered. And so I had driven past the box, paid for the guy's meal behind me, collected the guy's meal behind me, and drove off. All right? Exhibit B. I once forgot my contacts when I went to bed, and I woke up, and I put my glasses on, and it was all blurry, and so I was freaking out, and five minutes I'm sitting here thinking, you know what, I'm going blind, and then I realized I forgot to take my contacts out. Exhibit C, and we've all done things like this, right? I have, at least. I've done it every other day. The pipe underneath the sink was leaking, so like a good man, I took a big five-gallon bucket, put it under the pipe, as it's filling up, it's about to overflow. I'm like, okay, now I've got to empty it and put it back under because I don't want to fix it yet. So I empty it, and where do I empty it? I poured it in the sink that's leaking, right? And so kind of redundant. All these things are just illustrating this idea that John Stott, when he's looking at this passage, he says this. The human memory is notoriously fickle. The epitaph over Israel's grave was they soon forgot And it was to overcome our forgetfulness of Christ crucified that Jesus himself deliberately instituted the Lord's Supper as a supper of remembrance, a fragrant forget-me-not. We forget. I mean, think about Israel, right? Right after the Exodus, they forget and they disobey God. We're the same way. It's in our nature. And so Paul is, he knows that Our our memory is fickle, and so we need to exhort one another. We need to encourage one another to remember Christ daily. And so let's look at some of the things that Paul's saying to remember, right? The first phrase, risen from the dead. And this is in the perfect tense, which just means the action's been completed, and it's ongoing. So what does that mean for us? Jesus is risen from the dead, and Jesus is still alive today, right? And that's where our hope is. If Jesus hasn't been resurrected from the dead we have no hope. Cast away Christianity, right? One commentator wrote, the resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical event to be remembered, but it's a truth-holding promise for believers to be rehearsed over and over and over again. He is risen, and his resurrection, inside of his resurrection, lies the promise that one day we too will be risen to life in Christ Jesus. And it needs to be rehearsed over and over again and over again. Look at the second phrase, the offspring of David. Not only is this reminding us of his fleshly birth in Jerusalem so that God actually, he became a man, but it's also, you know, he's the Davidic king. So we just did a series in Genesis 1 through 11, and one of the questions that um, Genesis is covering, um, Fudd and Jack pointed this out multiple times, one of the questions it's seeking to answer is, Who is this offspring that was promised that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Who's this offspring that was promised to Abraham that's going to be a blessing to all the nations, to all who bless him? And then if you keep tracing Genesis, it leads to the Davidic king line coming through Judah. And keep going through the Old Testament, you get to David, and David's promised an offspring that's going to sit on the throne forever. And so we're asking, who's this offspring of David? And right here, Paul's answering, Jesus. He's the offspring that crushes the head of serpent. Jesus is the offspring that comes through Abraham. That's going to be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the offspring. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. He's the king, the forever king. It's for this Jesus 
It's for this gospel that Paul then says in verse 10, verse 9, sorry. He's suffering. For which I am suffering even in chains as a criminal. Paul uses that word um, even. He uses it elsewhere in Philippians 2.8. One other time in all of his writings, he uses the same idea. And it's talking about Jesus' own suffering. And it says this in Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself, Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so you can kind of picture Paul is associating himself with Jesus. He's identifying his experience of suffering with Jesus. So Jesus suffered even to the point of death on a cross, and now Paul is suffering even to the point of being chained as a criminal. And this word criminal, the only other time we see it is in Luke, right? When Jesus is on the cross, there's two criminals being crucified beside him. And so the Roman Empire is making a proclamation about Jesus and the two that are crucified by him that they are criminals. And so just as Jesus suffers as a criminal on the cross, Paul is now suffering as a criminal in chains. Paul is looking to his Savior. He's looking to his commander and saying, I'm willing to do because you did. I'm willing to suffer because you suffered. And So let's look at one other thing here. Um, Notice that last phrase. The word of God is not bound. Even though they have chained up the messenger, or maybe they've crucified the messenger, or maybe they beat the messenger to death, or maybe they belittled the messenger and said, oh, that guy is dumb. He doesn't know anything. Scientific theory, man. That's all proven wrong. Uh, Maybe they do that with the messenger, but guess what happens? The word is not bound. There's nothing that can stop the word of God. And so John Calvin kind of poses a powerful question to us from his commentary on this passage in 2 Timothy. He says this, and just ask yourself this question. Just dwell on this question. Are we willing to cheerfully and patiently bear to have our bodies and reputations shut up in prison if it means that the word of God goes free? Are we willing to suffer if it means that the word of God goes farther and goes freer? Not only dwell on the question, but dwell on the greatness of the statement, the greatness of the promise that the Word of God is not bound. Humans cannot bind the Word of God. It goes free. Trust in the power of the gospel to transform lives. Sing with Martin Luther in his mighty fortress, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. So this first reason that we're, we, sh- we ought to be willing to suffer, but also it's not just a reason, it's a motivation for suffering on behalf of the gospel, is Jesus, because he himself was willing to suffer. The next reason comes to us in verse 10. Reason number two. We should be willing to suffer so that the elect may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Paul writes this. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So our first one was looking to our commander, and now we're looking to those who are around us. And we're asking ourselves, you know, can we suffer so that they might hear the gospel and be saved? Um, Notice the word therefore. It's connecting it right to what came before. What's the therefore, therefore, right? That's the question that we ask. Why is Paul suffering? He's not only suffering because he is looking to Jesus, but now it's connected. He's suffering also so that the elect may obtain salvation. So let's look at this word, right? 
elect. So here we go, right? Pull out the boxing gloves. Rocky Balboa time. Um, doctrine of election, doctrine of predestination. We're not going to go into that. I was just kidding. Um, what I want you to just acknowledge is the word elect is in the passage, right? We can all acknowledge there's the word elect. All right? Why is it there? What, what's Paul, you know, saying here? So look at that. Look at that phrase. That they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. For generations, people have viewed this doctrine of, oh, people are chosen by God to be saved. They viewed it and they've kind of said, well, if everybody's elect, you know, and they're going to be chosen, they're chosen by God, we don't have to preach. We don't have to proclaim. We don't have to teach. We don't have to share the gospel. Because frozen chosen, right? They're, they're in. doesn't matter what we do. This verse flies right into the face of that logic, right? Paul understands that even though it's God who chooses whom will be saved, he also understands God chooses how they will be saved, and the way that God has chosen for them to be saved is through hearing the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's, I mean, that's it. And so for Paul, listen to what David Platt says this. The doctrine of election did not make Paul's preaching unnecessary. It made it necessary. Or John Stott on the same line. The elect obtained salvation in Christ not apart from the preaching of Jesus, not apart from the proclamation of Christ, but by means of it. So in essence, Paul's saying to Timothy, I'm suffering on behalf of this gospel because more people will hear it. More people will have the opportunity to trust in Jesus and to drink from the same well that I have drunk from, the well of everlasting life. Notice the word may, right? May obtain. It's kind of hypothetical. Why is Paul being so hypothetical? Why isn't he sure? Um, Paul doesn't know who's elect. There's not like a naughty list and a good list that Paul was handed down from God. Like, oh, they're on the list, preach it to them. They're not on the list, don't preach it to them, right? Paul doesn't know who the elect are. And so there's kind of two Two reasons here, right? We know that God has told us in his word. We know what he's told us in his word, that we're to proclaim the gospel. And we also know that God is faithful, just, and loving. What he's taught us, um, who he is, right? And so Paul's telling Timothy here, I'm suffering for the gospel so that more people might hear and believe. Firstly, Jesus, people come to Jesus only through the preaching, right? And kind of secondly here, who are we to delve into the mind of God, right? Election is a matter for God. He's the one who chooses. We don't know. We're just taught by our commander to preach the gospel to everyone. And so be willing to suffer so that more people might hear the gospel. Be willing to have your reputation locked up in prison so that more people will hear the gospel. Last week, we made a big deal on this phrase, in Christ Jesus. And notice in our passage here, right? Verse 10. Again, it's the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So last week, God promised a strength that we can go to Christ. There's strength to do all of the responsibilities that come along with being entrusted. There's strength to endure in suffering found in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Today, it's not strength, right? It's all of salvation itself is found. It's given to us in Christ Jesus, right? And so never forget the source. Going back on the idea of continually remember your Lord Jesus Christ. And so the last thing, the last two words of the passage, with eternal glory. 
That's very significant, right? What we're talking about here has eternal consequences. We're, we're talking about the salvation of other people around us. And it's an eternal thing. And so for Paul, he's bringing Timothy's mind and he's saying, don't look to temporary things, Timothy. Look in light of eternity. Get your value in light of eternity. What's really valuable if you start putting eternity next to it? So Paul again, I'm suffering so much so that more people have, more people have a chance to hear, the, hear about Jesus to come to Jesus, and to be with Jesus with eternal glory. One thing I kind of want to, just a little side rabbit hole, whatever, side note, just a question I want to ask. I asked myself this question um, because, you know, we live in a country where suffering's not as profound, right? Right now, what's going on in Iraq, we have brothers and sisters who are giving their lives because they're Christians, they're giving their homes. They're giving everything. They, I mean, suffering's very real in Iraq. You know, if you go out on the street corner in Charlotte and you start proclaiming Christ, you know, through a megaphone, you're not necessarily going to die, likely. You know, so, you know, where's the suffering in our own lives? Kind of, that's kind of the question. So this is what I want you to dwell on right here. Is the reason why... And I'm asking myself this question just as much as everyone else because it hits me just as hard. Is the reason why I'm not suffering much for the gospel, is the reason why I'm not suffering much for the gospel because I'm not proclaiming the gospel as much as I should? So there's kind of two things here, right? Maybe we're not suffering because we live in a country where there's rights. And so we're suffering in minor ways. You know, people are laughing at us. We're the laughing stock of the culture or whatever. Or maybe one of the reasons why we're not suffering is because we're not proclaiming. We're not sharing the gospel, right? Just, just ask yourself, kind of dwell on that question. I'm not saying that if you're not suffering, it's because you're not preaching the gospel, because there's examples of people who preached the gospel and didn't suffer on behalf of it. But just ask the question. I think it's worth asking. So the second reason, the second motivation is we're looking around. We're seeing others. And we want to give others the chance to taste of Jesus Christ. We want to give others the chance to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brings us to the third and final reason and motivation. This is in verses 11 through 13. We should be willing to suffer on behalf of the gospel because our own salvation depends on it. We should be willing to suffer because our own salvation depends on it. Verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. Many commentators look at what follows that phrase, um, and they call it possibly that Paul's referring referring to a, a hymn, an ancient church hymn, ancient church tradition, or something that, you know, a confession of faith that the church would do. And so he's grabbing this, you know, church song, this ancient church song that they would sing in worship, and he's putting it in front of them, and he's saying, you know what, this saying is actually, this is trustworthy, this is faithful, this is, this is right on, this is according to God's word, right? Look at the overall structure. There's four conditional statements, right? The first two 
are positive in nature. If you do this, there's great reward. And they kind of parallel each other. So it's like two sides of the same coin. You go to the last two. They're negative in nature. If you do this, this, this is going to happen and this is not good. And again, they're parallel. They're two sides of the same coin. So let's look at these things. Let's look at the first one. If we have died with Jesus, we will also live with Jesus. So the idea here is if we've already died with Christ on the cross, in the future we will be raised with him in newness of life, right? We talked about the resurrection, the risen Lord. There's a promise in there that we ourselves will be risen if we're following after him. There's kind of two different ways that people have interpreted this, right? Number one, what does it mean to die with Christ? Well, when we believe in Jesus, we are counted dead by God with Christ on the cross. So there's that way of interpreting Number two, it's kind of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, right? He told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever should save his life has to lose it. So this idea that it's more metaphorically speaking, that we're bearing our metaphorical crosses and we're dying to ourself. We're denying ourselves, We're denying our sinful passions and we're following after Christ. So what, what, what's meant here by Paul? You know, is it one? Is it two? I think fortunately for us, Paul sees them both as really the same thing. And so he really captures this idea in Romans 6. So I want to read a few verses from Romans 6. It says this, For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So there's both ideas, right? When we believe in Jesus, God counts us as crucified with Jesus. Why? So that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we will live a life of constantly denying ourselves, bearing our crosses, and walking after Christ. So they both lead into one another. By faith, we've been united with Christ in a death like his, and that leads into ourselves bearing our crosses and denying our own sinful desires. And kind of the, the last verse of that, Romans six eleven. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself, count yourself dead to sin and alive in God. So we are able to deny ourselves in this life because of the death of Christ on the cross. We're able to deny ourselves because we've been united with Christ. That's the idea that's coming here. So let's look at the second statement because it's really parallel. It, it's, it's bringing out the same idea, but in a different way. The second statement says this, If we endure, we will also reign with him. The word endure, again, present tense, continually adore. So make a habit of daily enduring any of the suffering that comes on behalf of the gospel. And if that happens, you will reign with him. And this again is, Paul is just, I mean, he's hearkening back to Jesus' own words. Matthew 19, 28 says this, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands from my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Or again in Ephesians 2, you've been raised with Christ Jesus. 
seated with him in heavenly places. This idea, if we endure the suffering, we will also reign with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. So there's the positive side. Let's look at the negative side. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we deny him, he also will deny us. The opposite of dying with him on the cross, the opposite of enduring all suffering that comes on behalf of the gospel is denying Jesus. The opposite of dying with him and the opposite of enduring with him is denying him. Um, this word denies in the future tense, so it's not something that's happened right now. And so Philip Towner, um, a commentator, says this. This disowning of Christ, Paul's putting forward this disowning of Christ, this denying of Christ, as a very possible future eventuality. So basically, he's, this is Paul warning Timothy. He's coming to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, look, this could happen. You could deny your Christ. Don't. So you, you can see, I mean, Paul's getting desperate for Timothy at this point. I mean, this is, this is not like childish things. This is serious things. And Paul's getting really desperate and he's, Timothy, don't deny your Lord. Right? Make a daily concerted effort to not deny your Lord. So this comes again back from Jesus. Matthew 10, 32-33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Claim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Share Christ before men and women. Don't be ashamed. There's a great promise here. Yeah, it's very negatively phrased, but there's a great promise here. If you stand for Christ before his Father, he will stand for you. Let's look at the last negative phrase. And again, parallel. So it's giving us the same kind of idea of denying, but it's giving us a different way of looking at it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The verb faithless here gives us kind of a clue as to how we're to understand this. Many commentators kind of, they're kind of split on this. You know, is this positive or is this negative? And they're looking at this and they're like, no, that, you know, a lot of them are like, this is comforting. Paul's comforting Timothy. If, if Timothy's faithless, don't worry. God remains faithful, right? Well, this word is, again, in the present tense. And so the, the meaning of it is, if we are continually faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so that I don't think Paul's got in mind, you know, the, you know, Peter, right? Peter denied Christ three times, and he was forgiven for it. That's not what Paul's got in mind here. What he's got in mind is a lifestyle of constantly denying Christ, a lifestyle of constantly living faithlessly before the Lord. And so that helps us understand what he means by God remains faithful. Well, God just promised in the, in the passage, the condition that came before that if we deny him, he will deny us. So if we live faithless, God remains faithful and he will deny us for our faithlessness. So you get the sense of desperation. Look at that phrase, the last you know, promise of it. If we deny him, he will deny us. The way it's written, 
it's literally bringing emphasis upon the subject, he. And so, so I'm just going to kind of read it the way it should be understood. He will deny us. It's very particular. It's very troubling, right? And so again, the desperation to Timothy, don't, don't live a faithless life. Don't continually live in faithlessness. Stand, endure. Be strengthened by the strength that comes from Christ Jesus to endure. Now, what am I you know, teaching here? <laughs> Work salvation? Um, let me be clear. We are saved by faith alone, by believing in Jesus because of his death on the cross on behalf of our sins, because of his resurrection. We are raised to new life in him. We are justified by Christ, by faith alone, by believing in alone. But true faith, true believers in Christ, they will endure the suffering. They will live faithfully. Their lives will be marked more by faithfulness than faithlessness. Their lives will be marked more by enduring suffering than denying Jesus. It might happen here and there, but the overall trajectory of their life will be following Christ, living faithfully before Christ. And so let's look at a stanza. I just want to read a stanza from a song that we sung last week. It's entitled, um, the song was Grace Alone. So I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. The person stands in faith by grace, right? He runs the race by grace. He's enduring the race. He's slaying his sin, producing faithfulness before God by grace. And he's also able to finish the race by grace. So this all harkens back, look with me in chapter 2 to verse 1. It all harkens back to chapter 2, verse 1. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All these things that Paul is telling to Timothy, it all harkens back to that. Go to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Allow him to give you strength to endure. Allow him to give you strength to not deny. Allow him to give you strength to live faithfully and not faithlessly. And so again, that's why the gospel is so great, because not only is it the thing that saves us, it's also the thing that gives us the strength to walk out God's will, to do the good works that he set before us to do. So rest in grace. So our third motivation to suffer for the gospel is our own salvation depends on it. So Paul's argument kind of comes down to three quick things, right? Three concerns. Our concern for Jesus, our concern for others around us, and our own concern for ourselves. And so let's just, in conclusion, I just want to return to the the first phrase in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. David Platt best summarizes this passage by saying this, A lofty vision of the person and work of Christ will keep us in the war, it'll keep us in the game, and it'll keep us on the farm. So as we're about to go into a time of worship and communion, let's just think. Let's just remember Jesus. Let's come to him for the strength to endure 
the strength to live out faithfully. If you don't know Jesus and you want to know more about Jesus, grab the person who brought you and ask them. I'll be in the back. Come back there and just grab me. I would love to talk about Jesus. Grab our elder Fudd. He'll also be in the back. So may you remedy. Continually bring Christ Jesus to mind. And may you be motivated to suffer on behalf of the gospel because of your concern for Christ, because of your concern for the salvation of others, and because of your concern for your own salvation. Let's pray. God, these are strong words. No man, no woman can bear. We need your strength. We will fail. And we will fail continually if we are not strengthened by you. I pray that you would just raise Jesus in our minds and that we would get such a vision, such an understanding of who he is and what he has done that we will walk this life motivated like Paul, living faithfully, putting the gospel before others, enduring any suffering that comes on behalf. I pray for our brothers in Iraq and our sisters in Iraq, that you would continue to allow them to endure. They're suffering many things. Allow them to live faithfully. Bring their persecutors to faith through their faithfulness to the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, as we take the Lord's Supper today, I want you to, uh, maybe it's painful, but at least do the good work of self-examination. And uh, as we're going into the time of Lord's Supper, I, w- I want to kind of let this be uh, the, the thought that springboards us in as we take. Now, this is not something, if you're a believer, that is uh, new information. This is something that you've heard many times. However, um, as I say it, I-, I want you to let it land deep down into your soul and let this truth just maybe re, or maybe the first time, um, amaze you. For Christians, right now, sin does not keep Jesus from receiving you. All the sin that you've committed or will commit or maybe even are finding yourself in right now, don't miss this, that sin does not, this is for Christians, does not keep Jesus from receiving you. That's amazing. And the only thing I can think of is, why? Why is that the case? And that's because of the gospel. None of that's review, but it certainly is amazing. Every one of us has, if, if we're honest, a deep, deep desire to be received by our God, received by our Creator, and to know that our sin, which causes separation our rebellion that causes separation from us because of the gospel now does not keep him from receiving us should amaze us that Christ would love us that much that he would give himself to go to the cross in order that 
God will now receive us. Now, don't miss this, because when I say receiving, I think some of us mean after I die, after I've lived 75 years, after I've lived 85, 95 years, and I've finally gotten to the, to the point of where I'm, I'm really super spiritual and super holy and I never sin anymore, and now God's finally happy with me, and that's the moment where I get to cross into heaven, and that moment, God's like, nothing keeps me from receiving you. You've been so sanctified over this past, you know, 50 years of being a Christian, I now receive you. In a sense, it's that, but don't miss this. It's also right now, at your 20s, at your 30s, at your 40s, at your 50s, where you still know you are habitually in sin. Christ is now receiving you continually into his fellowship. And your current or past or even future sin does not prevent him from doing so because of the cross, because of the gospel. That is where we need to come. That is why when we come and we let all those truths really land into our heads when we come to the table, we can say, I have been strengthened by His grace today. So, this is not just an exercise of futility or habit or anything like that. This is something where we are coming, being strengthened by the Lord's Supper and His grace. Grace that is not salvific. You won't be saved because you took the Lord's Supper. Instead, it's a grace that breaks down your pride and mine and helps us continually remember there's not a moment that I don't need His grace. There's not a moment. And and don't miss this. Don't be glad that I'm saying it right now so that the person sitting beside you can hear this. This is meant for you right now. We all personally need to let Drink deep this truth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, as he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, so the night before he was crucified, he started this Lord's Supper as a physical reminder for the disciples every time they got together to take the Lord's Supper to remember what was going to be happening the next day. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about it. He said, um, I delivered to you that the Lord, on, on Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And so Christ took bread. Now, today we're using unleavened bread. It looks like a cracker. It's not a rich cracker. This is actually unleavened bread. Specifically chosen unleavened because in the Bible, leaven is used to talk about sin. And when leaven is used to talk about sin in the Bible, the, the only thing that's constantly reminded us is, is the pervasiveness. Sin Leaven, if you put leaven in something in the dough, it's pervasively through it. You can never get out, and it's, the whole thing's in there without question. And so the idea of using unleavened bread is what's been declared of you now. And the reason why Christ will receive you is sin is not pervasive of you anymore. The way Christ sees you, his imputed righteousness into you, the declaration over you now is All the pervasive sin has now been removed and forgiven because of Christ. And as Christ sees you now, he sees you as his own perfect righteousness. Therefore, you're always received. And so when he says he takes bread, we're taking unleavened bread just as another physical reminder that Christ's righteousness has been applied to us completely. And what's true of us is this. No pervasiveness of sin anymore. That's what's true of us. And he says that you... Um, that on the night he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Symbolic of the broken body that would happen the very next day. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. 
The next verse says, In the same way he took the cup after supper. The cup here is filled with juice. They took wine back then. But the reason why we're taking juice is because it's the fruit of the vine, and that's what Christ used. And the reminder that he's trying to help them see, it says in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, remission of sins. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, animals were killed, animals were killed, animals were killed, trying to atone for the continual sin of the people of God. But animals can never atone. And then Christ came forward, perfect Savior. The God-man came and died. And his blood being shed now says, no more animals have to be killed because the once-for-all perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, has been killed. His blood was shed. And now that saying in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no continually having to do it every year anymore. Because Christ has come and his blood was shed, it's big enough and it's filling enough and it's satisfactory enough that all the wrath that God had built up towards anger and anger towards sin has been satisfied and now the sacrifice has been made. Blood has been shed and the forgiveness of sins has happened. So now we're seeing sin has been removed, forgiveness of sin has been extended and Jesus tells us to come drink from this deep well of the gospel and be reminded of what's true of you. We all need to hear this. And he says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as, you, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. And it says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim or you preach, literally, preach the gospel. You, pre- you preach the Lord's death until he comes. So physically, you have just preached the gospel, literally tasting of the goodness of it, of Christ's broken body and his blood shed for you. And because of that, that should launch us forward into worship. It should propel our hearts to want to rejoice in this true fact. Nothing will keep Christ from receiving you, not not in some future, but right now, if you're in Christ, nothing keeps him from receiving you. And that good news is reason to stand and sing and worship.